Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial. We hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are. We are busy preparing for the return of in-person programming at the club, so keep an eye out for our reopening news. We look forward to seeing you again in person when it is safe at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. In fact, this is the latest in more than 500 online programs the club has produced since the beginning of the pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as podcasts and video from our past events at commonwealthclub.org. For those of you joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any views expressed are those of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. If you're watching us live on YouTube, please feel free to enter some questions or chat with the other viewers in the chat box and uh, get ready for a great conversation among our speakers today. And now let me introduce Claudine Chang, the founder and president of the APA Heritage Foundation. Claudine. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Claudine Chang. Um, the APA Heritage Foundation uh, was founded to um, support, promote uh, the understanding of Asian and Pacific Islanders culture. And uh, we, every year, uh, the, the coordination of San Francisco's APA Heritage Month celebration uh, is one of our biggest uh, program of the year. Um, Every year, the month of May is nationally celebrated as Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and it is really a very special time uh, for all of us in the community. Uh, we look forward to it every year, but this year, I must say, it is very different. It is different because we go into the month with a very heavy heart. Um, the Asian Pacific American community has been going through so many challenges uh, in addition to um, the COVID-19 pandemic, we are really facing tremendous challenge from the recent anti-Asian hate, um, the, the increase, the, the rise of that. And every, every, every other day we have been reading in the news that some Asian Pacific American, especially seniors, were being attacked. So um, I think the community is really upset and angry about it. But you know, this is APA Heritage Month. We also want to be very positive uh, to share um, you know, the history and the contributions of our community with everyone. The program today cannot be more timely. Uh, walk the walk, talk the talk. We are talking about really how, how we can address uh, the pertinent issues facing us today. Um, the issues about how to bring diverse communities together, uh, about the meaning of solidarity, about how we can be good allies, and you know, to working towards a more harmonious society. Um, so we really appreciate uh, the opportunity to co-present this program with the Commonwealth Club of California. And now I like to uh, introduce my good friend Michelle Mew, uh, the producer. Uh, of the Michelle Mew show uh, at the Commonwealth Club. And this is such a thought-provoking program and all throughout the year, uh, Michelle was bringing to uh, her audience, you know, news and information and, and so many uh, inspirations. And I want to thank you, Michelle, uh, for this opportunity to partner with you. Thank you so much, Claudine. And thank you to the APA Heritage Foundation, of course, and the Commonwealth Club for bringing us all together. 
And thank you for joining us for Walk the Walk, Talk the Talk, a deep dive into race relations. Our esteemed panel tonight will discuss how we go beyond just the words, how we, how we go beyond just the statements, and be actively engaged in fighting against racism and reducing violence in our communities. So it is my distinct honor to introduce to you our speakers this evening. Alicia Garza is principal of Black Futures Lab, strategy and partnerships director for National Domestic Workers Alliance, co-creator of hashtag Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter Global Network, and also co-founder of Supermajority. Hala Hijazi is a commissioner for the San Francisco Human Rights Commission, a member of the board of directors for the San Francisco Interfaith Council, and co-director of Truman National Security Project, San Francisco Chapter. John Osaki is the executive director of the Japanese Community Youth Council. He's also a filmmaker. His film, Alternative Facts, The Lies of Executive Order 9066. And finally, our moderator this evening, Dr. Jennifer Kim Tran, who is the assistant professor of ethnics, ethnic studies of CSU East Bay and also the executive director of the Oakland Vietnamese Chamber of Commerce. This is where Claudine and John and I say goodbye to you. I hope you enjoy the program. And now let's welcome our speakers and our moderator this evening, Dr. Tran, the floor is all yours. Thank you so much for the introduction, Michelle and Claudine. Um, today is such a joyous day to be in the presence of such exceptional leaders, both local and national. Happy APA Heritage Month to you all. I'm so honored to be invited by Commonwealth Club as well as APA uh, Foundation. And uh, given the unique experience that each of you bring to uh, community organizing as well as coalition building, I really feel like this conversation around a deep dive into race relation is going to uh, be very uh, enriched with all of your experiences and lessons learned given um, the work that you do within the San Francisco Bay Area as well as nationally. And so with that, um, it's APA Heritage Month. So I think it'll be great for us to just start, you know, each of you sharing what uh, brings you here today and what you're excited to dive into. Uh, let's start with you, John. Thanks, Jennifer. So uh, I think what brings me here today is uh, my father uh, was incarcerated uh, as well as my mother during World War II for being Japanese. Um, and I think the trauma of being incarcerated based solely on race um, manifested itself in them both getting involved in social justice issues. My father was uh, one of the few Japanese Americans who organized with the black community during in the 1960s to oppose the redevelopment of the Western Edition. My mother was a vocal advocate for the desegregation of public schools in San Francisco. And the result of all of that is uh, you get me, uh, somebody who has been working with um, other communities um, outside the Asian community for, for many, many years. Uh, and I'm just very pleased to be here with you all. Thanks, John. How about you, Hala? What brings you here today? Um, first of all, I want to say um, Ramadan Mubarak and assalamu alaikum. I'm already emotional. <laughs> John, you already got me. Um, let me just give me a second. Um, what got me here is so many reasons. I am Muslim. I am Palestinian. I'm an immigrant. Um, I grew up in Delhi City. 
um, when I was when I first came to the country, it was the most diverse city in the country. It had the most dialects spoken. Um, that's why I was so excited about this panel tonight to have a Japanese, uh, a Vietnamese, African American, Chinese. Everybody is here. And and as we get older and as we move on with our lives and you go to school, it, you see the more segregation. Um, you see um, even segregation in schools, especially um, in colleges and and uh, postgraduate studies. So what brought me here is a couple of things. A daily city where I grew up, um, 1981 to, to 1989, had the best experience of my life to be around so many diverse people and all Tongans, Koreans, everybody, uh, my black brothers and sisters. And then, you know, 9-11, uh, uh, sorry, UC Davis. Um, to, I became a resident advisor. And so my students, I've never met a non-white, non-Christian person before. So to be at UC Davis excited and to see, um, to see folks that just didn't know and, and, and to start interfaith, I actually started interfaith dialogue at UC Davis. Um, and then third is 9-11. I worked for Mayor Willie Brown, um, and I took Mayor Brown um, to the mosque on 20 Jones Street uh, that Friday. And after he left with the police chief, feeling safe with my hijab on, I was chased uh, by two people. Um, until this day, it's a traumatic experience to be in your own city, to just been with the police chief and still fear for your life on the streets of San Francisco. So that doesn't leave you. So 9-11 really played an integral part in mine and so many others' lives. And then finally, and I have to say her name correctly because I'm going to say it wrong, is Xiao Shanxi, the 76-year-old San Franciscan who was beat down on Market Street. I say this every day to everybody. You didn't see a Chinese woman getting beat. You saw your mother, your aunt, your grandmother, an old lady that got beat by somebody. So why we're here, John, Alicia, and I are here for the same reasons, because we know we can do better. We are responsible for what has been happening um, in San Francisco and across the nation. Thank you, Hala, for sharing. Yes, um, I have a feeling that today's conversation is uh, going to be very personal because the political is personal, right? And so um, now for you, Alicia, what brings you here? Well, first of all, it's a real honor to be here. I'm on this panel. I'm Alicia Garza, and I'm here for a number of reasons. Um, one, because whenever Michelle reaches out to me, I just say yes. <laughs> but two, because we're in a, a, a moment that while incredibly scary and chaotic um, is not new. And so what I am hoping to be able to bring to this conversation is also um, a sense of our connected and interconnected histories, um, and also some inspiration around how our communities continue to work together, to continue to build trust and connection, um, and, and fight back against the division that has been plaguing all of us. Um, so I'm excited about that. And I'm also excited to be here to continue to explore the ideas and possibilities of what ongoing solidarity can look like and how we resist some of the um, wedges, right, that are used to keep our communities divided, to keep our communities distrustful of one another. Um, so I'm excited to bring that to this conversation, and I really appreciate being invited to be a part of it. Thank you, 
like I said, each of you bring, you know, different experience and hopes and aspirations into today's conversation. And the theme of it, uh, walk the walk, talk the talk, a deep dive into race relations cannot happen if we don't start with real talk, right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, thinking about how we can turn our words into actions. So um, with uh, with that, let's let's kick it off with just the context, right? As we all know, the recent coverage of attacks against Asians has resurfaced and circulated harmful dominant narratives, such as interracial tension, presumed black and brown criminality, and Asian Americans as model minorities. Can each of you offer a deeper understanding of what underpins these narratives and their wider implications for building solidarity? And let's, let's start with you again, Alicia, since we ended it with you. Yeah, sure. Um, well, there's a lot of things um, that we can talk about here. And I think it's always important when we're talking about context to also talk about how we got here. Mm -hmm. And here's the reality, right? Um, you know, just like we talk about Black communities as if we're all the same, um, we do the same with Asian communities. Asians are a diaspora, just like Black folks are, right? We have many different um, histories, experiences, etc. Um, and somehow all of those come together um, in this place, right? Um, in ways that are quite complicated, actually. Um, in our communities, right, we all try to figure out how it is that we um, coexist, but in the, at the best, at the best kind of possible outcome, right, we, we try to figure out how it is that we um, live together. And a part of what it means to live together in communities that are deeply segregated, um, in communities that have been um, divested from, right, in terms of the things that we need to, to live well, um, in communities where kind of segregation happens, not just by race, but also by class, right? Um, you know, for a lot of people in this current context, you know, Chinatown might be a place that you go to, to go to a market or, you know, get good food. But in fact, right, Chinatowns across the country, right, were um, literally similarly developed like um, housing projects where Black folks live, right, where, and now where um, Samoan communities and Tongan communities, right, and other um, Asian communities, we all live together. Um, and the reason that we have these kinds of enclaves is because when you are designated as other in this country, whether it be because of race, nationality, gender, sexuality, ability, citizenship status, right, we could go on religion and faith. Um, what, what happens, right, is that in order to maintain that categorization as other, we have to um, create the kind of culture that justifies why you don't deserve to have the things that you need to live well. And oftentimes, right, we also develop a, sh a set of shared stories um, about each other that we haven't totally interrogated. Um, and right now, just to bring it into the current context, I think there are a lot of conversations happening about criminality. There's a lot of conversations happening about you know, where is this violence coming from? Uh, just here in Oakland, in Oakland, Chinatown, there was a huge story, right, about uh, allegedly an, an Asian elder, right, being attacked in broad daylight by a Black person. Um, it turns out that that elder was a Latinx elder, right, but, but, but we, didn't, we didn't 
we didn't retract that story that we told right about about black people attacking um um asian elders and so um i i think there's something to be said here about um, the ways in which the tensions of our communities not having the things that we need to live well play out amongst and between us. And this is not actually a new phenomenon, right? From internment to um, exclusion acts, right? To Jim Crow and, and other forms of segregation. And um, what we find, right, is that the same tools are being used against our communities to consolidate power into the hands of a smaller and smaller group of people at the expense of many. Now, when it comes to talking about um, anti-Asian violence, I think we can't divorce it from um, the geopolitical context. Um, it has not been lost on me, right, that over the last um, four years, right, at least, uh, there has been a, an increasing drumbeat um, coming from the United States government, in particular, specifically led under Donald Trump. But of course, um, what we find is that this drumbeat actually persists, regardless of political party, uh, that does a couple of things. It is um, making a drumbeat that is in competition right, with, with China as a, as a global economic power. Um, and, it, and it comes with a range of um, narratives, right, that both demonize China as a country, but also demonize Asian people as if all Asian people come from China, right? So there's all of these, like, really intense um, um, parallels here that I think are helpful for us to put on as a lens as we try to pull apart What's happening here and why? Um, the, the, competing, the competition between our, our, our nations um, is feeding a lot of stereotypes and it's feeding a lot of stories that become incredibly dangerous. And one of those stories that got fed in this past year in particular was that um, this pandemic, which is now global, right, um, one was rooted in China, right? And then because of who was leading this country, right, they always put a little extra cherry on the top. So there becomes these um, conspiracy theories, right? That that the coronavirus, right, was brought here uh, uh, as a way of um, keeping the United States from competing economically. And that is spreading throughout our um, culture in a particular way that, um, is, is demonizing Asian communities, um, demonizing people who are already deemed as other, and then also that has the possibility and the real potential, and we're seeing some of this, uh, to uh, uh, pit communities against each other who actually have um, a lot more common cause than, than we often talk about. Uh, so that's some of the context that I think we're dealing with here. Um, thank you for that really important context. and. Uh, John, uh, Hala, can you provide us more like maybe some of on the ground what that context looks like and, you know, flesh out some of the, the roadblocks that Alicia, you know, gestured towards so we can get a better idea of what is preventing us from being able to see each other, you know, and from understanding the shared traumas that we have that's absolutely necessary for us to develop collective solution to healing, right, and and alternative forms of hate of, of safety, and um, just a better quality of life for our communities. Well, I just would like to add. I mean, really, right now, I'm just going to speak about the political stuff, right? Um, the vile and hateful 
words and actions of our political leaders that we have elected. And I have to say, it's both the, the, Demo- the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, and it's in San Francisco and elsewhere, uh, these opportunities to create divisions um, so that you can get voted again. Um, so you can say this group of people support me and the other ones don't. And then you, and also provide funding sources for based on your city. I personally don't believe in district elections because then you're, again, perpetuating this whole uh, divisions and segregation in the city. You know, people forget um, that Chinatown is one of the poorest cities in the country. Um, Let me just repeat that. Chinatown in San Francisco, just a few, like not even a mile away from the Embarcadero, is one of the most poorest underserved populations in the country and the oldest and the first and the oldest Chinatown. So I think if we don't understand our history, we don't understand how we got here, um, it feeds into that narrative. And the roadblocks, again, is ourselves. When we go meet with elected officials, we're meeting with our own group. Poor me. We're not meeting, hey, where is the need? Which Which community needs it the most right now? Who do we need to service? So especially in the African American community, you know, people are sometimes are attacking the African Americans because you know, um, you know, we have now a black mayor and she's doing a lot for the black people. They're 3% of the population. They're in Bayview, they're in Harvest Point. They've been, whether it's housing, whether like a jobs, contracting opportunities, they have fallen behind. And so how do we as a community, whether it's the Asian or Latino, it's not about who's our turn. Where is the need? And I think that's, uh, we can talk later about the barriers and what we need to do. But just for this particular question to answer it, we are responsible and the elected officials and some of the community-based organizations are also responsible. So we need to do better in that we need to collectively say we are one San Francisco, the same way we need to say we are one United States, we are one America. We are one democracy, and our civil rights are being impacted and affected when we don't do A, B, C, and D. And so because this is APA month, I really want to focus on that. And when we don't talk about Chinatown, we don't talk about our brothers, our Asian brothers and sisters, whether they're on Terrible Street or they're in Hunter's Point, they still have the same needs, and those needs need to be met by all of us. And we also need to call out our elected officials that are um, creating these divisions as well. Yeah, and I I just wanna add that I think we have to acknowledge the the harm that the model minority myth has created um, between communities of color in this country and and talk about the fact that it was a very deliberate uh, political strategy to divide our communities. Um, and was really conjured up uh, to, you know, address um, policymakers were concerned, frankly, about the progress that had been made during the civil rights movement. Um, And so they created this narrative. Um, And the problem with the narrative is that it's been incredibly successful. Um, You know, to Hollis' point, when you think about, you know, the Asian community right now, you don't think about those that are in poverty, right? The only thing that's been ingrained in much of society are the ones who are successful. And I think that it's been problematic for for multiple reasons. One is that, you know, this narrative was used specifically to deny the demands of the Black community. 
Um, and I think there's still lingering effects around that. And I think um, it's, it's also problematic because um, for a lot of Asian Americans, you know, the narrative around um, our communities for decades was that we were unassimilable, right? We could never be truly part of American society. And so a lot of Asian Americans um, overcompensated, right, to be accepted um, by white society. And, the, and what the, the challenges that that creates is that it does, in some cases, and I, I want to be very clear that I'm talking about individualized cases, it does lead to adopting some white supremacist behavior. Right. And so and I think and I and I just have to say that if we're going to be honest and real in this conversation. Um, and I also don't think that um, for a lot of Asian Americans, they understand that it was really the civil rights movement uh, led by the black community that reopened this country to Asian immigration. Um, and a lot of people don't understand how um, working together has been so beneficial to all of our communities. And a lot of, you know, a lot of us. Um, in Asian communities just don't have that context. We don't have that understanding. And there's just a lot of work that we have to do within our communities and, and across our communities. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that work is very hard, right? It requires a commitment to build relationships, um, to work through things when there are uh, disagreements and Oftentimes, people are not willing to work through those types of things. And I think that's part of, um, you know, my concern and, and my hope for the future is that we can adopt a narrative of persistence um, that, and understand how collectively working together is, benefits all of our communities. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there for the next question. Thank you. You know, um, John, when you're speaking, I'm thinking about what Alicia just said about how these problems are scary but not new. And so the relationships, intra-communities, inter-communities are not new. Do you think that, each of you, do you think that the work to build solidarity and deepen understanding um, is more challenging than ever now? Or do you think that um, because of the moments that we've been experiencing and bearing witness to, you know, in the last 18 months has actually ignited more possibilities that didn't exist historically? Well, I'll just uh, answer from the perspective of the work of my organization. And I think something that I hope people take away from this conversation is that our work um, with and for other communities is normal. Uh, that's just what we do. And so as a an Asian American based nonprofit. And last year we served almost 800 black youth, over a thousand Latinx youth, um, several thousand um, young people from all Asian ethnic communities uh, in San Francisco and parts of uh, San Mateo County. And we've been doing that for decades. So it was not like the light went off over this last year and we just, you know, we thought to ourselves, gee, we have to you know, we have to figure out how do we work in solidarity with other communities is something that we've been doing for decades. And I think that, um, you know, our organization was started by young people who are part of the Third World Liberation Front, who led the strikes at San Francisco State and UC Berkeley. And so that sense of solidarity has been a part of the DNA of our organization since we were founded uh, five decades ago. Um, but I do want to just say that over this last year, you know, as the number of 
uh, unarmed black people continued to be murdered in this country, you know, our black staff came to me and they said, John, we need to do more. And they were right. Um, and so just over this last year, um, our organization took its largest fundraiser um, and rebranded it. It's uh, we, We've been running um, in, uh, in a run called the SF Aloha Run for many years, and we rebranded it to the SF Aloha Run for Black Lives. Um, don't, it ended up being our most successful fundraiser ever, and we donated all the proceeds to two uh, organizations which serve the Black community, um, and the rest went towards scholarships for marginalized young people that we're serving. Um, we started a scholarship just for our Black participants, um, and I want to just make the point that that wasn't my idea. That was our Black staff coming forward and saying these are things that we have to we have to think about how we we do more. Um, we've organized fundraisers for Black-owned businesses, um, and so these are all things that have come about. And I think the point that I want to make here is that this is a, an Asian nonprofit doing this work, and you know, part of I think what we have to contemplate is. What if it was an organization that had real wealth and real assets and real power? I mean, this is just our small, you know, relatively small nonprofit here in San Francisco. Just think about the types of things that can be done with organizations who have real uh, power. Thank you, John. Yeah, I can jump in here. I, I think that's a really important point. And um, I don't think that it's harder to build relationships now. I think um, we just have to recommit to them. And, you know, in our work at the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund, um, we've been doing, we're fiscally sponsored by the Chinese Progressive Association and Center for Empowered Politics. And we actually had an experience this summer um, where our organizations were attacked because of our relationships. Now I can tell you, you know, our organizations have been um, in relationship with each other for a very long time. Uh, you know, before the Black Futures Lab, right? Alex, Tom, and I um, worked together in San Francisco, uh, building community power uh, with uh, uh, working class Chinese immigrant, uh, mostly workers, uh, in San Francisco. Uh, and um, Black folks, right, who are also largely working class and also largely unemployed. Um, and we have been through this fire many, many times together, um, whether it be being attacked because of our relationships to one another. Uh, we've done work together when uh, uh, actually a, a Chinese elder was, was uh, killed uh, in Bayview-Hunters Point. Um, and we had been building relationship and work between our communities in such a way that um, it allowed us to move through the dynamics of that together. And I absolutely 100% agree with John that um, it's not that it's harder to do per se right now. Um, it's that our infrastructure is not as strong as it should be in relationship to what, how, what relationship building takes and how you stay in it even when it's hard. And I think so much of the time when we talk about solidarity, right? We're talking about moments as opposed to long-term relationships. Uh, and you all know, anybody who's had uh, friends in their lives forever, you know, sometimes you have bumps, right? But the reason that you go through it is because you understand that you're going to make it out on the other side together. 
Um, for us this summer, what that looked like was, uh, you know, our, our our fiscal sponsor being attacked as a, a front for the Chinese Communist Party. And then it looked like my organization and myself personally being attacked uh, for also being a front for the Chinese Communist Party and trying to, you know, be a subversive force uh, using Black communities, right? I was supposedly building some uh, uh, building a black empire, right? That is trying to aid China and taking over the United States. I appreciated being called a queen pin and I appreciated uh, being told that I was building an empire to transform this country. But certainly we know what that language does and we know what it's designed for. And I can tell you, because we've been through this so many times together in various forms, we were able to not only respond, we were able to generate resources to protect our, our, our organizations and our communities from attacks, but we were also able to continue to do the work that we needed to be doing in that moment, which was all about making sure that we were changing the balance of power uh, from the White House to Congress, and then, of course, also uh, locally and statewide. So much of the time, these attacks are geared toward um, us not doing the liberatory work that we've done together for a very long time. Um, so often these attacks are geared toward uh, breaking apart the relationships that we have built, right, and testing their strength and testing their resolve. And I think that it's really important just to kind of point out here that, um, like John did, there are so many instances where we are already working together. And if there are places where people want to help strengthen the ability of those relationships to um, endure, right? We need more hands on deck. So I will say that. Um, I will also say that I 100% agree that, you know, in this last, in this moment, um, uh, what we've seen is like a ton of resources, um, more than I've seen in my lifetime, going to uh, Black organizing, right, and fighting back against anti-Black racism. Um, we're starting to see more resources moving toward uh, fighting anti-Asian violence. And at the same time, um, I want us to be conscious of the fact, right, that not all of those forces um, have our interests in mind. And so, you know, some of this is, it can be for people about making statements and, and getting closer to brands than it actually is about taking care of our communities, right? Um, some of these same kind of uh, uh, corporate interests, right, are the same interests that are exploiting our communities and actually creating some of the conditions that we see in our communities, whether it be, uh, you know, our families not being able to afford housing um, in the communities that we've grown up in for generations, whether it be our families, um, you know, working inside of entities that, um, you know, are, are engaging in wage theft or not providing benefits so that our families can live well. Um, and this is part also part of relationship building, right? It's about um, being able to uh, 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 be in these kinds of whirlwind moments, right, where we have increased visibility and sometimes increased resources, while also keeping our eye on the prize um, and making sure that um, in, in, in being in this moment, right, that what we're not doing is actually extending some of the miserable conditions that our communities are in while we are trying to, to, to address um, something very specific and in the now. So I, I just want to end by also lifting up a couple of organizations that I think are doing incredible work in addition to yours, John. 
uh, the Chinese Progressive Association has been doing fantastic work uh, uh, to both help organize right our communities and be in relationship with one another um, but also to clarify right what's at stake um you know and i won't get into all that right now but they're doing excellent work uh the asian prisoner support committee has been doing excellent work for many many years um building bridges amongst communities that are being and have been criminalized right um uh 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 AAPI Women Lead uh, is also doing really fantastic work, uh, both fighting back against anti-Blackness in some of the kind of larger rhetoric that's happening right now, but then certainly also um, really helping to push our communities to envision what it looks like for us to um, develop and generate safety together that doesn't require us to pit each other against each other. Thank you, Alicia. Hala, would you like to add anything to that, that question, the original question? Uh, the, on, I think um, the, I think a couple of questions were combined. Um, yeah, I just would like, yeah, I just would like to say the work that we do, uh, especially John, Alicia, and, and and you, Dr. Tran. It's a way of life. It's not mm-hmm. seasonal, right? Um, there's no glory, um, and it's hard work, um, and it's day to day. And the reason most of us do this. Um, I have to go back to what John had said. You know, some of the Asian community members are now saying, wow, now we know what you went through. Um, now we know what folks um, with the African-American going through. And it is about education and, educa- and educating people and engaging them. And that's why it's really important to also work in the interfaith community. Some of the most racist um, institutions are churches and synagogues and mosques um, and temples. So I make an effort to go to as many synagogues and as many churches and as many temples as I can. Why? Because I know sometimes I'm not welcome there. And I make sure that I'm there. I make sure they see me and I greet them and I understand their religion and their culture and their and, and their ways. Um, the other thing is, what do we do with our schools? We are not holding our schools accountable. Nobody wants to talk about our schools and how we're probably one of the worst, in the, not just in the nation, but in the world. Um, what are we doing to hold our superintendents and our elected officials accountable as it relates to how, how are we educating and how are we engaging our children and our youth? Um, how are we dealing with ethnic studies, right? What kind of ethnic studies programs? Um, we need to start earlier, not in college, not in high school. In grade school um, and bullying in schools, I really love Beyond Differences, the work that they do. Um, no child, you know, um, know your classmates, which really helps children eat together and get to know each other. Um, I really love the work of the Asian Law Caucus. Um, they have done so many things for so many different communities, and I really want to uplift them and, and thank them for their leadership and their support. Um, but again, I just want to go back to what does solidarity look like and what does allyship look like? Um, me wearing a Chinese a shirt saying, you know, uh, stop uh, Asian hate, but I don't have a Chinese friend. That's a problem, right? Me saying stop, you know, murdering our brothers, black brothers and sisters is a problem if I don't have a black friend. Um, and so some of the things that we talk about, and I'm sorry for being blunt, but but those are things um, there is life and death right now, the rise of white supremacy, the rise of hate. It's not just, um, you know, hate. this is a public health crisis. This is a national security crisis. And what are we doing to make sure that our, our families and our friends and our neighbors 
um, their dignity is being uplifted. Um, they are secure in their homes. Um, and so those are the things that we really need to work on. How do we love thy neighbor? What does that mean? I live in the marina and I've force people to say good morning now, because you should know who lives in your community. You should know um, if they get to know you. So I really think there's a lot of work. I'm so grateful for the work that you all are doing, uh, but it really does start with us individually. It starts us with being accountable. It starts us when we're saying we're an ally, we're in solidarity. What does that mean? I am so happy that I have almost every nationality, every race, every religion as a true friend that I break bread with, that I go to their places of worship, their cultural institutions. I also give money. Um, and how do we make people feel safe um, to do that? How do we get them to open up and let them know that this is what solidarity looks like? This is what allyship looks like. Um, again, it's it's we need to go back to the basics. We need to go back to our churches and our synagogues and our places of worship. We need to go back to our cities and our schools. Um, and we need to go back to our neighborhoods. Um, one of the things that I really want people to do more, especially on nextdoor.com, when you see racist comments, when you see racist and vile comments and underlying things, you need to call your neighbor out. Next or not, Tom, is not for you to make these type of statements. Um, and also to reach out to nextdoor.com and hold them accountable as well. Thank you, Hala, for the examples that you gave in terms of how ordinary individuals can make an impact. And um, that's really helpful. And John, you were talking about like the, John and Alicia were talking about for folks who have been doing this for the, a long time, and even the generations prior to this, this work isn't new. And actually there's a call to do more, right? However, we do know that during this moment, solidarity is new for some people, right? Like the idea of getting to know your neighbors, having empathy is new for certain people, and especially for our immigrant communities who are monolingual, right? So like, and I, I'm thinking about individuals who have a different relationship to power than black communities, right? All of our communities, you know, uh, what, based on what Alicia was saying on how we've been designated as other, hold a certain relationship to power and certain privileges that our neighbors don't have. So uh, my question for you is how, how would you define solidarity for folks that are coming to this work for the very first time, for folks who are having their heart broken for the first time, for folks who feel powerless and actually have more power, more resources, more assets than they think. And if you'd like, provide some concrete examples of you know, some opportunities you see or some efforts that are taking place that are allowing people to not just wake up, right, but doing something with their power to empower others in order to move beyond a good ally and actually being in the trenches to influence change and reduce racism within our communities. And um, yeah, anyone who wants to go for it, really. Well, uh, I'll provide an example. And I, I think it starts with acknowledging that systemic racism impacts all of our communities. And I think sometimes we undervalue the power and the resources and the abilities that we have just through our time and effort. Uh, and I, I want to just share um, very briefly that uh, my father 
um, when he was finally released from his imprisonment during World War II, uh, he was, uh, the government gave him $25 and a bus ticket. Um, and that's what he had to his name at that point. But he, he took jobs that nobody else wanted. He found a way to put himself through school, eventually get to college, and he eventually earned a degree in architecture. And he um, felt a tremendous amount of connection uh, and empathy towards the oppression of the Black community in this country. And so what he eventually um, did with his professional talents uh, and gifts was he uh, became known in the 70s and 80s for designing Black churches. Um, and, you know, it seems like a very odd uh you know, situation. And I had a chance to um, ask one of the black ministers who hired him, you know, why did you choose this Asian American architect to design your black church? And he said two things. He said, one is um, when we met with him, he listened to us, right? He truly listened to what our vision was for our church. And the second thing is he, is we could tell from the things he said that he would fight for us. Um, and so that led to, uh, you know, him designing many black churches in this, in the Bay Area, um, the most notable of which is uh, Allen, Be uh, Allen Baptist Temple in Oakland. Many don't know that uh, it was actually a Japanese American who designed uh, that church. And I'm sharing this to, to make the point that you don't have to be a civil rights leader um, to promote solidarity and to make changes in how we work together. You can take your personal, your individual talents, your resources, what you um, have as an individual, and use that in a way where you are supporting the vision, the hopes, the dreams of other communities. And I just want to reiterate that, and I think we've said this many times, is that, you know, it, it is, I am convinced that individuals, communities advocating for themselves will never make as much progress as communities working together. And all of us can find ways to do that um, through our circles and our personal talents and our resources and just our time and effort. So I just really want to make that point that it doesn't take, um, you know, a person, you know, he wasn't wealthy, you know, absolutely. He didn't have a lot of, you know, he didn't have a lot of money, but he was able to apply his talent uh, in a way where it supported other communities. And I think we can all find our ways to be allies um, in this moment in, in this country. Thank you. John. I just, I just want to add uh, to John, I really do think it's important to also, when you say, how do you support show um, allyship, um, visiting small businesses, right? Um, going to their stores, you know, going to Chinatown, uh, walking the city. It's not just a tourist area. Most people's like, oh, it's a tourist area. Well, no, those are lives and livelihoods that we need to support. Those are grandfathers and grandmothers and, and a small business and young small business owner that are starting their, their work. So I really, really implore other folks um, to really go out into the avenues, go out into Chinatown, go out into the communities, um, support the Chinese hospital. We have the first Chinese hospital in the country. It's a historic hospital and um, does so much great work. So I really want to share that, um, that we can do simple things just by, 
you know, visiting these stores and small businesses and talking to them and something as simple as asking them, how are you doing? How is this impacting you? What can I do? Uh, some things like that, just within your community, it goes a long way. Yeah, I think those are all great points. And um, I think I would just add that um, one really simple and lifelong thing we can commit to is learning about each other's histories. Um, I, I, I will be honest, um, I didn't grow up understanding that um, for so many of us, right, we are diasporas. Um, I didn't grow up understanding um, the very rich and complicated history of how we all got here. And I, like many other people, um, you know, carried uh, stories that I had been told, right, about people in my community without ever doing the work to really um, try and understand the nuances and the layers, right? Um, and, and we have all of these incredible resources in our communities that um, can help make those histories possible, including talking to our neighbors, but we also know sometimes there are barriers, right? Sometimes there's language barriers, sometimes there's other types of barriers, but that shouldn't stop us, right, from trying to better understand how we got here, um, the histories of how our communities have developed and grown, right? Um, we are still telling a lot of falsehoods about internment. We're still telling a lot of falsehoods about slavery. We're still telling a lot of falsehoods about um, war, right? We're still telling a lot of stories that are not our own to help explain why we deserve um, the conditions that we're living in right now. And so um, that is something that's very simple and accessible that we can all use to, to kind of interrupt um, um, uh, that level of ignorance. But then there's something else, which I think is really important. And that is about kind of taking on the hard conversations in our own communities. Um, I have spent uh, the better part of this year um, really diving in with Black folks, right, around some of the really complicated conversations that we're having that are mirroring white supremacist society, um, whether it be about ownership, whether it be about businesses, whether it be about, you know, all of the kind of petty stuff that happens in our communities. And I've been trying to offer more context for how people understand what's going on here. And I say that because um, I've been having conversations with people who make media, people who I consider to be relatively well-informed, right? Where um, some of our funkiest parts are coming up and it would be really easy to say nothing, right? And dismiss it as, oh, well, that's just what they're saying or that's just how they feel about this. But actually in this moment where people are being attacked in the street and people are watching and doing nothing. Um, in this moment, right, when we are, um, there's a heightened level of fear and distrust, um, we do need to say something. Um, and not in the self-righteous way that I think lots of us kind of get, you know, um, um, hyped up to do, right? This is not the what I did when I was at, in college and coming home and telling my parents they didn't know nothing, you know? <laughs> it's not that kind. It's the kind of conversation that invites people to, um, to be curious about their assumptions. It's the kind of conversation that lets people know um, I'm not okay with um, those assumptions because those assumptions actually shape people's behavior. Um, and it's the kind of 
conversation that um, that says, I, I want to go through this with you and I want to end up with you on the other side of this, right? And I don't think we should underestimate um, how powerful that is, um, how powerful it is to not remain silent when um, conversations go sideways. And we all know that they do. And whether it's about you know, it's Black folks having conversations about Asian folk or whether it's Asian folk having conversations about Black people or whatever, right? Like, it is important for us to engage in these discussions, especially in this political climate where um, white supremacy and white nationalism um, is no longer something that's been driven underground. I mean, for God's sake, we had a president who stood on a national stage and told a white nationalist organization to stand back and stand by. It's really important in this moment um, to resist that kind of, um, uh, to resist our temptation that is a very American thing, which is to, um, have amnesia and ignore the elephant in the room. <laughs> it's really important to counter that because when we don't, really bad things happen. And history has already taught us that many times over. We have an, an opportunity to interrupt um, the patterns that we, that we have seen um, throughout history. And we have an opportunity right now um, to get to a different place um, and to really show that we've learned um, some important lessons as a nation. So some of that can be done really by our, our individual actions each day with each other. Thank you each and every one of you for just really nailing that answer, that question, you know, in terms of like, what can folks do during this time of crisis? And you're saying to not just stay in the moment, to not stay in the moment, be committed to building long-term relationships, having these hard, difficult conversations that really um, reflect your growth as opposed to what your hashtag is, right? Or what, you're, what clothing you're wearing and the importance of learning not only your history, but the histories of others. I just want to note that um, this past year, AB 1460 was just passed in California that requires ethnic studies to be a graduation requirement for all college graduates. And that would not have been possible if it wasn't for the pressure that was put on the administration as a result of Black Lives Matter movement, right? That this work does not happen in a vacuum, nor does it happen and uh, uh, just waiting for it to happen. That we had to keep pushing for it as if our lives and the lives of our loved ones depend on it and the work requires us to really rethink who are our neighbors, like Hala was saying, and who we must fight for, even if that means we might lose some along the way. And so uh, just to wrap us up right now, I would like to really ask you to um, bring us back to APA Heritage Month and thinking about how arduous this road has been and continues to be. You know, can you share a specific uh, tradition or practice from your each and every one of your heritage that you draw strength from and inspiration from that allows you to be sustainable, hopeful um, as you continue to do this work? Well, I'll share something really quick. And um, my Japanese is terrible, so I'm not going to attempt to say this in Japanese, but there's a similar uh, phrase in many Asian cultures, and that is um, that a lot of families raise their children 
um, based upon the philosophy of the nail that sticks out gets hit. Um, and a lot of Asian cultures have perpetuated um, this sense of silence um, and keeping our head down um, and not sticking out. And I'm just, um, I'm eternally grateful to my mother and father who did not follow, um, you know, that, that sentiment. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, when I'm thinking back um, about my mother and her speaking out about desegregating public schools at a time when it was extremely um, controversial um, and she lost a lot of friends over it. Um, my brothers and I were not allowed to go and play at certain um, houses anymore because of her stance on desegregating public schools. And I, I think about in this moment, the amount of courage it takes to sometimes take a stand, to not be silent, to speak out for what's right. And I think that this moment, I feel, gives us an opportunity to do that. And so I am optimistic about what we can accomplish uh, moving forward together. Thank you, John. Alicia. Okay, I'll, okay go ahead. Uh, I'll go quickly. I'll, I'll just say, um, you know, Black communities have a long history of fighting for more people than ourselves because we understand very deeply that our um, livelihood and our survival um, is intertwined. Uh, and so I'm going to continue that um, in the spirit of APA Heritage Month. And I'm going to continue to make space and room for these conversations that need to be had. And I'm going to continue to do um, what, you know, my mom and my grandma and <laughs> all my family ever taught me, which is that um, we belong to each other. Thank you. I just wanted, I'm just very grateful for my parents and all the sacrifices, um, everything that I do, all my sacrifices um, is in their honor. And also because I'm the oldest of six children with beautiful 12 nieces and nephews, I owe it to them um, and their lives um, and everything that they're going to accomplish to make sure that we have a better, um, we have a better country and a better place um, than, we, than we found it. But I would like to leave you with um, some Islamic traditions that lead me every single day. Um, the teachings uh, that are found in the Quran and the Hadiths, and these are three personal ones that I live by every single day. Oh, mankind, I have created you from male and female and made you into tribes and nations that you may know each other, not that you may despise each other. Indeed, the most noble of you in the sight of God is the most righteous of you. And when one man asked the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, what are the best Islamic traits? The prophet responded, feed the people and greet those whom you know and those whom you do not know. And the believers and their mutual kindness, compassion, and sympathy are just like one body. When one of the limbs suffers, the whole body responds with it with wakefulness and fever. And for me, as a Muslim, as an Arab, as a citizen and as a friend and as an ally, I will work every single day with our Asian community to get rid of that fever and um, to stick to, to stand together and make things better. Thank you, you all, for sharing something so personal um, with all of our listeners today. And you know, oftentimes these events leave us, you know, feeling positive and hopeful. And I'm feeling feverish. I'm I'm feeling courageous, uncomfortable, and I hope that 
the listeners today also feel that urgency and uh, with the examples that you provided today, the organizations they can support and, um, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you Commonwealth for hosting us today as well as APA Heritage um, Foundation and to follow the celebration guides and upcoming events that are inspirational like today, please follow them at apasf.org. Thank you for all of your time today. And remember that we belong together. Back to you, John. Well, thank you again to all of our special guests on our Commonwealth Club of California program tonight. And thanks to all of you for watching or listening to us online. Feel free to share this video and podcast with your family and friends. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe. Have a good weekend. Bye.